0: Welcome to the Howard Jarvis Podcast. My name is Susan Shelley. I'm the Vice President of Communications for the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, the most influential taxpayer advocacy group in California. And I'm honored to be joined today, as always, by HJTA President John Kupal. Hi, John. How are you today?
1: I'm doing very well, Susan.
0: How about yourself? is great. I've been following up on some of these technical problems that the state of California has been having, technical difficulties, you might say. And even though it's been well documented that all of the technology problems that the state of California has undertaken have gone over budget, over schedule, and sometimes over the edge of a cliff, there's a proposal to take on an even bigger one. I thought we should talk about that. This comes from State Senator Scott Weiner of San Francisco. It's Senate Bill 1047, and it would authorize the state of California, require the state of California Department of Technology to build a publicly owned artificial intelligence cloud cluster.
1: Yeah, I think the emphasis should be on the word cluster here. <laughs> um, this is uh, uh, California. The birthplace of high technology on the face of the planet coming out of Silicon Valley going back to the 50s, the birthplace of high tech, the state government cannot get its act together on virtually anything related to high tech. We've seen this, the the, the state's payroll system, the whole, they were going to consolidate all the technical computer activity into something called Fiscal to track money and expenditures. That project has not yet come to fruition. It's been in, it's been a plan for more than 20 years and they can't get their act together. That's just one example. Another example, the EDD debacle. Um, You know, a lot of that was that the technology to get the checks out to people and to verify people's eligibility that, that was gross incompetence and lack of oversight, but a lot of it had to do with the inability of the computer system to deal with it. The department of motor vehicles has had its problems with, uh, computers, uh, well-documented, although they seem to have gotten a little bit better, but over and over again, we, we, we see the state of California and for the state of California to think, for one moment that it could take on a massive project dealing with artificial intelligence i think that is just a recipe for disaster you know one of the things that that high technology uh involves is privacy concerns and and many of these progressive um politicians will complain about how private companies don't they fail to keep people's personal uh information private and they, they impose big fines and they provide a private right of action for lawsuits against private companies that mistakenly, you know, negligent sometimes. And sometimes it's just, they're hacked. Uh, but, but there's severe consequences for private companies that violate privacy or somehow release data. Well, remember when the attorney general himself <laughs> They claim inadvertently released data having to do with everyone who had a concealed weapons permit. Mm -hmm. Talk about important personal information. You know, that's the kind of information that criminals like. And, of course, the attorney general fell all over himself. I apologize. But it was just the height of hypocrisy for these bureaucrats to... To point the finger at private companies and say, you know, this is why government needs to get into these areas more. No, that is absolutely wrong. Government should stick to essential governmental services and creating a cloud for AI is the last thing the state of California should be doing.
0: Well, the other thing that that this bill mandated is a bunch of regulations for all of the companies that are working on AI and this is something that i don't know why the state of california alone should think it has to do because there's a task force in washington and there's this is a global situation with artificial intelligence and there are all kinds of legal questions about copyright and trademark and and you know what are they training these machines on and are they imitating other people's works and is that protected or not and there's just a lot of national questions and international questions involved. So having California set up its own regulations and its own system seems to me to be just kind of an invitation to disaster.
1: Well, not only that, it's highly uh, duplicative. Uh, And we see this with California a lot. A lot of states you know, in something that's regulated by the federal government, the states generally stay out. I mean, the more conservative states say, okay, the federal government, things like OSHA, you know, that's a federal law. Yes, there's implementation at the at the local level, at the state level, but but then California seems to to really want to engage in one upsmanship over the federal government. If the federal government has a program, California kind of raises its hand and says, We can regulate it even more than you can, federal government. Uh, I mean, it's just in the confusion for the private sector, not just businesses, but individuals, you frequently get not only duplicative laws, but sometimes uh, conflicting laws. You've got a law at the federal level that conflicts with the state. and. In theory, the federal level under the supremacy clause should should prevail, but sometimes it's not clear. Things like our rules on arbitration and stuff like that. Um, so you know, again, California, uh, number one engages in too many things that it should not engage in. Secondly, the things that it does engage in, it doesn't do very well. So that's that's the state we live in, Susan.
0: Yes, it's a state of confusion for sure. Well, one of the you know, people might listen to this and say, oh, well, the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, they're always grousing that the money's not spent efficiently. But you can look at the state auditor's website for verification of this because the Department of Technology, California's Department of Technology, has been on the high risk list since 2006. And then again, since 2013, for two different things, one for not conducting oversight of technology projects in the state, and one for not securing the information in technology projects. And that's really serious. How many times have you gotten one of those letters saying, you get one year of free credit monitoring because something was breached somewhere? Right. So even the companies that spend all the money in the world to try to get the best security have breaches. And the state of California, which is inept on its face, they're they're really messing it up, and they don't have to give you anything. They just give you a letter saying, well, we did an investigation, and it was not intentional. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Well, th- thanks fixed. a lot. Yeah.
1: You, you know, um, uh, several years ago, there was an individual who was actually put in a high-ranking position for the implementation of Fiscal, and he wanted to talk to us. I'm not going give, to give you the guy's name. But he asked for a meeting, and he came over to the offices of the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, and he was hot as hot could be. He was complaining that his hands were tied on anything, and he ended up quitting in disgust. And his, this was the guy that was had a high-ranking position for the implementation of fiscal Fiscal, and he was beside himself saying, these people who are, are ostensibly my bosses— have no idea what they're doing, and they don't give me the freedom to do what they told me they need need to do. And it, uh, I, Susan, I see this a lot. There are some really good people who work in government, and many of those people are extremely frustrated with the system and the dysfunction that is the state of California.
0: It is very frustrating. You know, we saw this kind of on steroids during the COVID pandemic when everything was filtered through who's going to get the government contract. Right. And of course, that was all done under emergency rules. So whatever transparency requirements would normally exist, blown away. And it was just, it, it was just pay to play. It, it, you know, just over and over, you could just see people would donate large amounts and they would get contracts. Right. And it was really frustrating Uh, Because it went on for years. And then the governor did not want to give up those emergency powers. And you could see on the behested payments page, the FPPC has to report to the public when these behested payments reports come in. What's a behested payment? It means that an elected official, including the governor, asked somebody for money for a governmental or charitable purpose. And what's a governmental or charitable purpose? Well, in some cases, it was for informing the public about COVID or some such thing, or to, to do their lottery to give out prizes for vaccinations. That was, they got huge donations, but they're not donations made voluntarily where people step up and say, I'd like to help, what can I do? They're companies with business before the state, right. or unions, or organizations, or nonprofits that have business before the state. And the governor calls and asks for the money. Now, he's got emergency powers. He can hurt your business very badly or help it. And he calls and says, I'd like you to make a donation to my inaugural committee or to this COVID information fund or to this nonprofit that's going to do something, something somewhere. How do you say no if you're running a company that's regulated by the state of California, if you're a utility? you're an oil company how do you say no to these kinds of phone calls
1: very difficult and in fact we've we hear this all the time now the howard jarvis taxpayers association as you know susan is in a very unique situation as a true grassroots organization um we are not vulnerable to that kind of political pressure our members uh become members of this organization because they just want to know the truth what what's going on where is my money being spent how much am i being taxed but you would be surprised maybe you wouldn't be surprised of the number of lobbyists that i talk to who sometimes have to play the game you know they give the money to the governors projects but they come to me and they say man you guys are lucky because you guys don't have to put up with this nonsense. I, I know of one industry in particular where the shakedowns are so transparent. Uh, and I asked this individual who heads this organization, it's a trade association, how do you stand that? And he goes, well, my members need to do business in the state of California. We really don't have a choice. That is the, the, This is the problem. Whenever government takes on more functions, because as government expands, so does the opportunity for corruption and shakedowns. The, the governments that do the least, do the minimum things that government needs to do, are the governments that are least likely to be corrupt. And I wish people realize this, that, that when you have these expansive government programs, You have people with a financial stake in the continuation and the operation of those programs. So, you know, and California is probably the worst state in the union when it comes to this kind of problem.
0: A lot of states, people would be arrested for extortion for doing this. You call up a company with business before the state and you say, I need you to donate $100,000. By the way, no cap on behested payments. There's right. a cap on campaign contributions, except in the case of ballot measures, but there's no cap on behested payments. So $1 million, $5 million, there's no limit to what <laughs> a politician can ask for. It's not just the governor, it's also all the state lawmakers. Right. It's even at the city council level, where the mayor of Los Angeles, the prior mayor, Eric Garcetti, raised millions and millions of dollars for something called the L.A. Mayor's Fund, which was a nonprofit that did things that were beneficial to the city of Los Angeles, which always coincided with his own political self-interest. And he would call up companies or contact them through intermediaries to say, we would really like you to make a donation. And once again, if you're doing business in the city of Los Angeles, no is not a wise answer. No. So yeah, you, you can't put, say no
1: to that. You can't they, say
0: no to that. They would put you in handcuffs, even in Chicago, which is so corrupt. They would <laughs> put you in handcuffs. And they have. There was some There was some city alderman, I think, which is the equivalent of a city council member, who contacted a Burger King restaurant that was trying to get permission to do renovations and needed a permit and said, you know, you really need to hire my law firm to manage this for you. And he ended up arrested because that's not legal in Illinois. But it's legal in California as long as you fill out the forms correctly and you call it a behested payment for something, something. It's quite a racket and it's all disclosed and you can find it. You can look this up, go to your favorite search engine on the Internet and Google behested payments and you will find the transparency portal and you can put in the name of any elected official in California and you can put in the name of the payor and the payee if you want to search that way. If you want to see how much was donated to the governor's wife's nonprofit, the California Partners something something, you can look that up too. And it's very shady. And so when you when you tell me a story about someone who was working on Fiscal, who was so frustrated that they wouldn't let him do what they asked him to do. Right. That's what I'm hearing. There are people who don't want it done or they want it done through another company or there's maybe a contract that could be awarded so they'll just wait till they decide who they're going to award the contract to before they decide how they're going to implement the policy. That's what I'm hearing. The whole thing is just corrupt from top to bottom, but it's all legal.
1: Yeah, and uh, a, a kind of a tangent to this is um, the the business uh, the businesses that engage in contracts with the government, even if it's not a behested payment, I'm thinking of the example where there was pressure to hire this one firm to do voter outreach. Remember the what was a Sk Knickerbocker, that that yes. firm, a P, PR firm, mm-hmm. that was hired by the Secretary of State at the time to do voter out voter registration and voter outreach meaning advertising but they were only doing it in progressive districts and they were using taxpayer dollars to do it this was not voter outreach to all Californians this was using taxpayer dollars to cherry pick precincts and areas for you know for education of you know your rights as a voter and by the way here's a nice flyer um that was That's so true. bad that the controller of the state of california at the time refused to pay the bill until two about a year after the fact the the legislature ratified the contract and ordered the, the money to be paid but that whole that whole corrupt activity it it was so bad that even the Sacramento Bee reported on it as being just stinky as all get out. So this is, again, people think that California has a reputation for clean government. No, it doesn't. It's getting worse. And, and pretty soon, you know, this is going to be the New Jersey on the West Coast.
0: So what happened to that Secretary of State who issued a contract to a PR firm that called itself Team Biden? right on its website, for a so-called nonpartisan contract, which was not authorized by the budget of California, such that the controller refused to pay it. What happened to that Secretary of State who helped the Democrats win in 2020? Well, by an odd coincidence, Governor Gavin Newsom appointed him to be a United States Senator, and that's where he is right now, Senator Alex Padilla. So I'm
1: shocked I'm are
0: shocked. you shocked? so I just want you to know what the penalty is what the penalty is um, a really good job in Washington with six year term limits six year <laughs> six year terms so Yeah that's yeah. the penalty for um, for doing this kind of thing in California for helping one party with tax money and making it I know making it seem like it's nonpartisan when it's not. That's kind of corrupt, wouldn't you say?
1: Kind of yeah, I would say go. so.
0: Yeah, well, you know, something else that's going on is we have Proposition 1 on the ballot. Now, this is sponsored by, quote, Governor Newsom's Ballot Measure Committee. And this is another incident of unlimited donations because you can't limit the donations to a ballot measure committee under the various court decisions that control campaign finance law. So the governor can pick up the phone and ask regulated entities in the state of California, unions that negotiate contracts with the government he can he can ask them to donate to the ballot measure committee and proposition 1 will be awarding 6.38 billion dollars of borrowed money to different contractors to build things and different health organizations to run them and by a shocking coincidence he's getting million dollar donations to this committee from unions and builders and health insurance companies and health care companies, and they're all donating to Governor Newsom's ballot measure committee, either voluntarily or because somebody asked them to. And if you're looking to get a contract for a big major expansion of mental health service care, behavioral health service care, and housing, I guess no would not be the right answer if they ask you for a million-dollar donation. And so that's how the money's coming in for that.
1: Yeah, irrespective of how... What bad policy it is, you know, when, when this proposal was uh, first placed in the ballot, understand, and again, I'll just reiterate my very cynical view of Proposition 1, it is under the guise of dealing with homelessness uh, and mental health. But the reality is um, the governor has placed a lot of his political capital behind Proposition 1. And the reason is, is because I believe he has his eyes on national office, and he knows that there is one area where he is very vulnerable, and that is California's abysmal record in dealing with homelessness issues. And so I think he's kind of using this Prop 1 as cover. Um, It is so important to him, he told the legislature he did not want anything else on the March ballot because he wanted prop one to be a standalone measure so he could spend his tens of millions of dollars pushing it over the finish line well an interesting thing is happening number one this proposal was not particularly well thought out and people are now coming around to realizing that there are several downsides to this for example you would think that some of the mental health advocates would be all on board. No, they're not, because under this proposal, they would lose a substantial amount of revenue that they currently get under the so-called millionaire's tax, Proposition 63. Plus, local governments that initially came on board and said, yeah, it looks good to us, they started realizing that it it now requires built-in expenditures over time with no guarantee that they'll be reimbursed. So there's been, I I have sensed a sea change in the perception of Proposition 1, people thinking, oh, people gonna love it, it's Gavin Newsom, he's got tons of money. Well, I don't know. I, I think, you know, and from the perspective of the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association, The first question we have with respect to any bond is, is this appropriate for bond financing? Bond financing are supposed to be used for brick and mortar projects to have a useful life. That's probably at least 30 years. I don't think anybody's been convinced of that. The constitution requires that a bond be used for a single work or purpose. I don't see that here. So uh, uh, again, we're not reflexively opposed to all bond measures, but in the in the best practices of inde- bonded indebtedness, this isn't it. So that's our main issue. The mental health advocates have their issue and local governments have their issue. So uh, now the opposition, Susan, unless I'm missing something, I don't think they have any money to run a campaign. And the governor has, you know, governor has all the money in the world that he can spend. So my my guess is that it will probably pass. But I think as people look at it, and time is running out, by the way, ballots are out there. But as uh, as people look at this, they may say, you know, something about this just doesn't quite ring fruit.
0: Well, you're exactly right about that. Let's look at the details of Proposition 1. It's a $6.38 billion bond measure. And 4.38 billion of it is a blank check to build so-called places for treatment, with a total of 6,800 beds. So that's 4.38 billion dollars for 6,800 beds. You can do the math on that and see that's not so. That's not such a great ratio. Right. Um, and you should be able to get more for your money, but you're not. You're not going to, because everything is going to be built with the most expensive labor possible. Everything is required to use prevailing wage but com- comply with the prevailing wage rules which is how government projects are built and it's the highest wages you can pay for construction anywhere right, right. so it's it's not cost efficient in that way it's great for the construction workers who are donating very heavily but it's not great <laughs> it's not great for the taxpayers and it doesn't get as as many people help as you would expect because of that and the places that they're going to build are completely non-specified it just says in the measure that the state government will decide down the road what they're going to build and where. So nobody knows. Are you getting help in your area? Nobody knows. Uh, it'll, it's all going to be decided later. And then this is overseen by two boards for oversight that approve the contracts. And these are all political appointees appointed yeah. by the state superintendent of education, by the attorney general, by members of the legislature, and by the governor. That's who's appointing. These, these people on the oversight boards who will approve the contract. So that's 4.38 billion of it. Places for treatment, not hospitals, but some sort of community facility. Nobody really knows how many for behavioral health, how many for mental health, who's going to staff them. Nobody really knows. It's a blank check. The second part of it is housing. $2 billion of borrowed money to build housing. Now, where does that go? That goes into the same program that is currently buying hotels under Project Home Key and converting them to housing with services down the hall. And this is the housing first model where no one who gets this housing can be required to be in a treatment program for sobriety or anything else. They cannot be required. So your borrowed money that you're going to pay back with interest, probably $12 billion by the time we're done with this, your borrowed money is going to build housing for people who could be using hard drugs in the housing you paid for. And and, before you think, well, we're just going to stop that in our community, no, you're not, because the law says that these have to be approved in a streamlined manner ministerially, which means no community input into where they're located or anything else about them. So that's $2 billion. Now, half of that $2 billion goes to veterans or to housing for veterans. But here's where this is really... Uh, from a financial point of view, very questionable. It's only going to build up to 4,350 units of housing, I think is the number, less than 4,500 units of housing total with $2 billion. And about 2,300 are reserved for veterans. So for all the commercials you're seeing about veterans, this is $6.38 billion. One billion of it is going for veterans, and that's only 2,300 and some units. There were, as of January 2022, 10,400 homeless veterans in California. And here's another question for you. Why are there still homeless veterans in California when we have already approved twice bond measures to build housing for homeless veterans? What happened to that? There's no accountability on this. It's just what looks good in the commercial, aha, window-dressing veterans or window-dressing firefighters or window-dressing whatever's polling well that week, and they put that in, it dominates the advertising, and it tricks people. Now, the worst part of Proposition 1 is yet to come. It takes, as you mentioned, the money from the Mental Health Services Act, which was Prop 63 in 2004, I believe, the millionaire's tax, 1% on incomes above a million dollars to fund mental health services innovative and new at the county level, not just to replace what they were already spending, but additional mental health services. Well, first, the state doubles its take from that money. Under current law, the state gets 5%. The state would get 10%. Of the money the counties have left, Prop 1 requires them to spend 30% on housing instead of mental health services. Well, there's two problems with that. One is that the money is needed for mental health services, and they're going to be canceling programs without it. And the second part is they lose the federal matching funds. So you lose 30% right there. You would get federal matching funds on that 30% if you spend it on health care, mental health care, but not if you spend it on housing. So you lose that. And then as you mentioned, who's going to pay to staff these facilities, these places that the government's going to build for treatment? Well, the counties have to do that, and there's no money for it. So they have to use their mental health services funding for that too. So what's going to happen here is they're going to have to cut programs or they're going to have to raise taxes. And that's very concerning to us.
1: Yes, indeed. Another example of a bogus bond, we call them, like high-speed rail and the the California Institute for Regenerative Medicine. I mean, and... It's not just us. Look at some of these reports that you just referenced from the state auditor uh, and the LAO. Uh, there are there are credible reports out there showing that um, these bond measures do not promise what they delivered. And I think one another thing you wanted to talk about, Susan, was the lack of oversight for for many of these legislative programs.
0: Yes, uh, Cal Matters did a really excellent story about a requirement from many, in many pieces of legislation, there's a requirement that agencies report back to the legislature about the effectiveness, uh, kind of a a progress report on these different programs. And there's a website that the legislature has to keep track of these reports. And when they went to the website, they found that more than 70% of the 1118 reports due in the past year were not submitted to the Office of Legislative Counsel. That's according to a CalMatters analysis of the records. And about half of those that were filed were late. And essentially, what CalMatters was trying to find out, and a tip of the hat to the reporters who did this Samia Kamal and Jeremiah or Jeremiah Kimmelman, excellent work in CalMatters. And you can look that up at calmatters.org, I think it is. Yes, calmatters.org. Um, the legislature is kind of flying blind without knowing. How some of these previous programs have performed, and in some cases, new lawmakers are coming in and they're introducing new legislation to do the same thing over again without even knowing that there's already a program doing that because there's no reporting on how it's going. And CalMatters checked with the governor's office, with the legislature's office, and and some with some of the agencies. And it it the, you know the story is they're just not really following up on the effectiveness of anything they've already. Put in place from the legislature?
1: You know, this is the difference between a state like Texas and California. In Texas, when a new program is adopted, when there's a piece of legislation creating a new program, they are required to establish metrics by which that program will be judged either a success or failure. And if that program does not meet those metrics, Program goes away. This is what we need in California now. Whose job is it for oversight? Legislation consists of passing laws. That's a big part of it. But a legislative body is also responsible for oversight. In Congress, you have Senate oversight committees. You have um, House of Representative oversight committees. We should be doing far more oversight in the state of California. We need to really. Uh, uh, put rocket fuel into legislative oversight, but there's no appetite for it. And the reason there's no appetite for it is that oversight activities just don't provide the clickbait that a new program does. A new program, you get the cameras, you get the press release, the legislators practically break their arms patting themselves on the back to to adopt a new program. Oversight is not easy work. It's, it can be boring, but it is so important. The difference in California, for example, as much as I like to complain about Congress, the Office of Management and Budget, OMB, they do quite a bit of oversight, and some of their reports are pretty good. Where is the oversight in California? Who should be doing it? Yes, we have the state auditor, but who should be doing the day-to-day operation of oversight in California? is the Department of Finance. That's under the governor. It is the governor's responsibility to engage in oversight as well as the legislature. You would think between the two of them, they would be better stewards of California tax dollars, but they're not. You you put your finger right on it, Susan. They adopt a new program, and then they just let it ride, and then somebody comes along with a new program. I mean, how many programs are there dealing with Housing for students. Uh, Okay, is that an education issue or is that a housing issue? There are these massive turf wars between these little bureaucracies saying, no, that's our territory. There's just all these turf battles between these bureaucracies because the laws are not clear as to who is supposed to do what. And there certainly is not the oversight that needs to happen to see that these programs are being are being effective in what they promise.
0: Well, we certainly see this in in what small businesses go through is that they find out about these regulations when they get a letter saying they're in violation of something and right. they thought they were complying with this but it conflicts with that and before you look around they're paying all these fines and lawyers and filling out forms and spending their time on compliance instead right. of running their businesses. And you know, there are certain things obviously that are very important health and safety and workplace standards and all of that. But some of it is compliance with nonsense (laughs) and nobody's following up to see what the costs are of what kind of burden that puts on the businesses or whether it's duplicative, whether multiple agencies are doing the same thing. A little more oversight would be helpful.
1: You know, one of the things that the California Department of Labor uh, or maybe it's just EDD requires this are these posters with all these disclosures? Your rights as an employee uh, has all the minimum wage, and some of these posters are are required to come in multiple languages. Well, the posters are now you can buy them online, and they're expensive. They're like a hundred dollars, but they're big laminated posters, they're they're the size of a king king's. King bed. I mean, I, I really, <laughs> seriously, massive. And all this tiny print saying, you have the right to do this. You have the right to do that. Your employer can be sued for this. Well, does anybody really, I mean, look, we're a, we're supposed to have the, I probably shouldn't say this. I think we're supposed to have that poster in, in our office as well. It's probably up in the bathroom someplace, but uh, you know, it's just, it's so silly and so unproductive. And yet, and yet, because it's a labor uh, code requirement. If you fail to do this, there could be a PAGA lawsuit, private attorney general, uh, where somebody sues, the lawyer comes in, and the the fines could be $500 a day for for all these little piddling violations. Again, this is one of the reasons businesses are leaving the state of California in fairly significant numbers.
0: Well, I I have heard complaints that this particularly, these PAGA lawsuits very often target immigrant-owned businesses, people who don't have a a lot of money for lawyers, and they don't have a lot of familiarity with dealing with with these government agencies, and they're essentially shaken down for settlements. Yeah. Uh, They get these letters, and it's like, you're in violation, and we're going to sue you, and you know, fighting one of these was probably more expensive than settling it in nearly every case, and so it's it's kind of a racket that victimizes small businesses that are just trying to do the right thing in California. So that's, that's concerning. Now I see that uh, talking about oversight again, that until December the legislature had a committee on accountability and administrative review whose job it was to study how well state programs were implemented and run. This is from (laughs) Cal matters, but it only held one oversight hearing in 2022 they held three oversight hearings in 2023, and then Assembly Speaker Robert Rivas disbanded it. It's gone. We don't need it. Who needs? Who needs a committee on accountability and an who administrator needs review? Who yeah, needs who, it? Who needs it? It's oversight. just in the way. It's just negativity, negativity, negativity. Yeah. Can you imagine?
1: The, those so, pesky little taxpayers wanting to know where their tax dollars are being spent—how dare they!
0: And this is why you should join the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association because <laughs> we're watching this stuff for you, and we try. Very often, we succeed in in right. raising awareness. In fact, they Cal Matters reached out to us for a quote about this because we're the we're the organization that fights for taxpayers, that fights for the good use of your dollars. It's not that we're against taxes. We're against wasting your money and raising your taxes. And that's what's been going on in California. And we all need to fight to fight against that. So join us. Join us at HJTA.org. Be a member of this great organization, the one that put Proposition 13 on the ballot in 1978 and fights to protect it to this day so that you are not taxed out of your home because of inflation, which used to happen all the time and doesn't happen now because of Prop 13 and because of the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. Go to hjta.org. It's only $15 a year. It keeps you in the loop, and it strengthens the voice of taxpayers in California. And something that we're working on now, the Taxpayer Protection and Government Accountability Act, will close some loopholes that the courts have carved into Prop 13 that reduce some of your taxpayer protections. that are still in the Constitution, but they've sort of been interpreted away by some of the courts and we are trying to restore what's already in the constitution and it's so effective at what it's trying to do it's on the ballot for november 2024 more than a million californians signed petitions to put it on the ballot but the governor and the legislature and all the city governments are frantically trying to knock it off the ballot what's the latest on that
1: well like they say the Uh, the governor and the legislature filed a lawsuit directly in the California Supreme Court seeking to take the Taxpayer Protection Act off the ballot. As you just said, it is a duly qualified initiative. It has got all the signatures. It's been filed. The Secretary of State says it's on the ballot, and the governor comes in, and the legislature comes in and says, no, no, we think it should be taken off the ballot because it 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 is an illegal revision of the Constitution, not just an amendment. Well, a revision is like a wholesale rewriting of the Constitution, and that's not what the Taxpayer Protection Act, in fact, as in terms of sheer impact, the Taxpayer Protection Act, in closing some loopholes, is less impactful than Proposition 13 itself was. Prop 13 dramatically reduced taxes, and yet the court back in 1978 rejected the argument that Prop 13 itself was a revision of the Constitution. The arguments being asserted by the governor and the legislature and all their tax and spend allies are very, very weak. And uh, we have responded. Uh, I'm one of the attorneys of record. We have many attorneys who have helped with this. We just finished uh, filing our response to all the uh, public sector labor briefs uh, last week, and so we're we're feeling pretty good about the merits. Uh, the question is always, how how swayed will the court be by politics? Now, maybe I'm a little naive, but I am hopeful that the court, seeing how weak the arguments are being asserted against the Taxpayer Protection Act are so weak that they will reject the lawsuit. But you're right, Susan. The Taxpayer Protection Act constitutes such a threat, at least perceived threat, uh, to the tax and spend interest that they are uh, they're very frantic. They're desperate to do anything to stop it. So let's assume for the moment that it stays on the ballot. 2024 is going to be a real turning point for the taxpayers of the state of California, and not just taxpayers, Anybody who wants to stay in this state, anybody who wants to preserve or at least return California to what it was a couple decades ago when this was the state that people liked to go to and not the state that people were fleeing like rats off a ship. So Taxpayer Protection Act is a very important first step in restoring the quality of life and the economy of the state of California.
0: Well, there are two other things that are on the ballot that we should talk about. One is ACA 1. Now, this was put on the ballot by the legislature, and this makes it easier to raise your taxes. And we're against that. We're against that. ACA 1 is a direct amendment of Proposition 13. It changes Prop 13. It says that instead of a two-thirds vote to pass a tax for a specific purpose called a special tax, instead of a two-thirds vote, it would only need a 55% vote if it was for infrastructure or affordable housing. And as a result, bonds, parcel taxes, sales taxes, anything that raises your taxes would be passed with just a 55% vote if they could somehow say it's related to infrastructure or housing, which covers an awful lot of territory the way that some have defined infrastructure. Pay raises are infrastructure. So you have to be really careful about that. We are against that. We think that it should not be easier to raise your taxes. They should have to show a need for what they're asking more money for. They should show you what they're already spending your money on. That's a higher priority than what they're saying they need it for. If they're spending their money on redecorating their offices and not on firefighting, well, we have a problem with that. We think they should spend the first dollar on the top priority, not the last dollar. Right. They shouldn't be asking for tax increases when they're wasting all the money you're already paying. So that's why we think it should be harder to raise your taxes, not easier. They should have to justify these things. And you know where it's justified, it's justified and the voters will approve it and have approved it. But making it easier to raise your taxes is a bad idea. So that's ACA1. No on ACA1. It'll have a proposition number sometime this summer. And the other one that's on the ballot is ACA13. This is very devious. ACA 13 is designed to make it harder to ever protect taxpayers again. What it says is that a measure that requires a two-thirds vote to raise taxes, that amends the Constitution to require a two-thirds vote to raise taxes, would itself need a two-thirds vote to be approved. Now, since 1849, the handwritten Constitution of the state of California, every constitutional amendment has needed a simple majority of the electorate to pass. Until now, because if ACA 13 is passed, then every time you want to protect taxpayers by requiring a two-thirds vote for bonds or a two-thirds vote for sales tax increases, every time it would need a two-thirds vote to pass that amendment. So it would be very, very difficult. Even Prop 13 didn't get a two-thirds vote. It got 64.7, I think.
1: Right. It got close.
0: Yeah. But it didn't get 66.7. So it wouldn't have passed. And that's the point. They are trying to make sure that we can never protect taxpayers again through the initiative process. That's very malicious and dangerous. So no on ACA 13.
1: No, and we will get the proposition numbers later. But but ACA 13 is directly targeted toward the Taxpayer Protection Act because the Taxpayer Protection Act has the provision restoring the two-thirds vote for local special taxes. And their argument is, well, that should require a two-thirds vote in order to pass. Well, they are they are intentionally trying to conflate the vote threshold at the local level with the state level. And Susan, you just said that when it comes to amending the Constitution, all amendments have always required a simple majority vote. That's not to say that the people should not be able to enact a constitutional provision providing for stronger protections at the local level. So this conflating between statewide requirements and local requirements is the the confusion is intentional. My, my reaction to this is I think the voters will look at this Assuming it still stays on the ballot, because quite frankly, it can be withdrawn well before the November election. But let's let's assume it stays on the ballot. I think voters will look at that, and they will they, they will ask, "Okay, what is it you're trying to do? You're trying to make it harder to tax. You're trying to make it harder to change the constitution, but only for one purpose." That doesn't make any sense, and I think it's too clever by half. The rule with initiatives is if it takes you more than a minute to explain it, it's not likely going to pass. The Taxpayer Protection Act is easy to explain. It closes the loopholes in Proposition 13 and provides extra protection for taxpayers in terms of transparency and accountability, period, end of discussion. People understand that we've seen the polling on that and people like it so i think this is what this this is really the stark difference between this gamesmanship embodied in ACA 13 in something straightforward like the Taxpayer Protection Act.
0: Well, we are all about making it harder to raise your taxes and protecting taxpayers. So we are against anything that makes it easier to raise your taxes and stops us from protecting taxpayers. It's pretty simple to me. So all you have to do is go to hjta.org, sign up for the free email alerts. We will keep you posted on everything related to the election as it approaches in November and right now In the March election, you can get the endorsements from the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association PAC, the Political Action Committee, at hjta.org. Just click endorsements, you'll see it. And you can get all the endorsements from the PAC for all the races in California in which they've made a recommendation. And also, you can see the recommendation on Proposition 1, which is vote no on Proposition 1. Bad for taxpayers, bad for everybody. No on Proposition 1. And that's going to do it for us today I'm Susan Shelley, Vice President of Communications for the Howard Jarvis Taxpayers Association. For John Coupal, President of HJTA, thank you for being with us. And we'll see you next time.
1: Take care, everyone.